So please let yourself come back in and get settled in a comfortable way. Well, it's a beautiful summer evening um, filled with light. Stay as light as, as light as it gets outside. Mm. And I'd like to begin this evening by telling a story. Somebody came up to me one time and said that actually they thought that evening Dharma talks were kind of like bedtime stories anyway. You know, you come and you get your story before sleep. Um, That has at least a little bit to do with the turning of the seasons and the light. And it's an African story. It's a story from the African Bushmen or the people around the Bushmen. And I've heard it told in different versions. My favorite version is from Lawrence Vanderpost, who talked about hearing it from his um, nanny, who was an old um, bushman woman, an old bushwoman, I guess. I don't know how you say it. <laughs> but anyway, she was one of that group and told it to him when he was very small. And he said, once upon a time, she told him, there was a man who had the most wonderful herd of cattle. And cattle were the great wealth in that part of Africa. And what made the herd of cattle so wonderful is that they were both black and white, which was a rare breed of cattle in Africa, and somehow was the symbol that these cows, these beautiful cows, contained everything of the world in them. They had both black and white. And he was quite possessive of them, so he decided to make a corral, a corral for them, in the midst of the forest nearby, which was a very dark and dense and great forest, um, whose name was Dukadukduk. And the reason the forest was named Dukadukduk is that it was so dark and dense that Dukadukduk was the sound that your heart made as you walked into that forest. It was that dark. And in the middle of Dukadukduk forest, or somewhere in there, 
he made this corral for his cows. And loving them, he would bring them the most wonderful lush grasses and things for them to eat. And they, in turn, provided him with uh, milk and all the things one can make from milk. Anyway, one day he was going to his beautiful cows in the morning to milk them, and there was no milk. And he got upset, and he thought, maybe I haven't fed them enough of the most luscious green grass and things. And he went and collected more by the river, brought things. Next day, no milk. Three days in a row, he was really upset. And being very upset, he thought, somebody must be stealing the milk. I'm going to stay with the cows and, and sleep here all night long and see if I can find out what's happening to the milk. So he waited and waited and it got darker and darker at night. No moon. One of those dark nights of starlight. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, there was a little bit of light and a rope came down from the stars. And down the rope climbed a whole group of beautiful young women carrying their milking baskets. They, they make baskets in Africa that are so tightly woven that you carry water or milk in them. They're milking baskets. <laughs> and they giggled, they laughed, and they went over because he had the most beautiful cows, and they milked the cows and filled their baskets up and were climbing back up the rope to the stars when he leapt out and he grabbed the last one and brought her back down to earth and said, you've taken my milk, my cow's milk, you know, and began to talk to her a bit and said, listen, you're so beautiful and you want this milk, let's make a trade. How about you have the milk and you and I get married and we'll share care for the cattle and so forth. And she agreed. So that was a quick kind of dating mythological style, right? And he promised to care for her well and so forth. And she promised to be uh, a good partner for him, but she also said, there's one other thing I must ask of you. She had with her this beautiful basket, not the milk basket, but another basket. She said, and the one thing I must ask, I'm going to put this basket in the corner of our little hut, our house. You must leave it alone and never look into it. Just leave that there. This is my own private basket. But you know how it happens, of course. One day, a short or a long time after that, when his wife was out walking in the woods or working in the fields, and he came back and he was terribly thirsty and had a long drink and he was sitting there and his eye lit on the basket and he said, why shouldn't I? I mean, she's, she lives with me, she's my wife, it's kind of my basket too, right? Why shouldn't I look into it? And so... He opened it up and looked in it. And that evening, his wife came back at dusk. It was a long summer day like this, a great deal of light, and just getting dusk. And she walked in, she took one look at him, and she said, you've looked in the basket. And he said, yeah, I did. And he said, it it's, makes no sense to me, wife, because I looked in there, you know, and you always told me, don't look in there, don't look in there. And there's nothing in it. And she said, you saw nothing? And he said, nothing is in there. Why did you make such a fuss? And she said, nothing again. And looked at him with a very sad look. 
for a long time and then turned quietly around and walked out the door and walked away into the sunset and was never seen again. So, says Lawrence Vanderpost, I said to my old Bushman nurse who told me this story when I was a little boy, this is a terrible thing for the man to do. Why did he do a thing like that when he was promised that he wouldn't? And the nurse said, well, men are curious. Um, And the woman probably would have understood that. She didn't mind that he opened the basket so much. But what she did mind was that looking into the container, the man could see nothing in it, that he couldn't see the things that she had brought from the stars, which was the spirit and the light of the stars. She couldn't see the spirit that she brought, and that's why she had to turn and go. So that's the end of that particular story. And one of the beautiful things about an old story, and this is a kind of ancient, ancient story that's been told for probably thousands of years, is that as you hear it, different chords will be struck and you find your place in the story. And maybe you're one of the cows, you know, or maybe you're the rope or the maidens coming down or those who are tending the cows, or maybe you're the night sky, or maybe you're the person who breaks their promises, or the person whose promises that were given were betrayed. The story tells a number of truths, one of which is that everything beautiful is wedded to nothing. In the Heart Sutra in the Buddhist texts, it says, the nature of all form is emptiness. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Form is not different from emptiness and emptiness is not different from form. That which is form is empty, that which is emptiness is form. Feelings, perceptions, thoughts, images, consciousness, all that arises is like this. All the forms that we know are born out of emptiness or nothingness. Or the Diamond Sutra, which says, to look at this world with the eyes of wisdom, see it as a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a phantom, a rainbow, or a dream. That is that what we are Um, all came a long, long time ago out of, well, they call it the Big Bang, but I'd rather call it the Big Flash, actually, because there wasn't air to hear it, but out of some star. And then it cooled down and it made planets. The Earth is a cooled star. And then we started to crawl around on the surface of the Earth, made of the Earth. Um, So the tissues of the iris of your eyes and the hair in your head and the clothing that you wear and the roads that you drive and walk upon are all cooled starlight. They were all in the middle of some great star a long time ago. And everything is this way. It's all born in some miraculous way out of nothing, out of emptiness. And this isn't just a mystical statement, but a statement of modern physics as well that there's some reality out of which everything comes. But we live in a 
terribly materialistic culture. And so our perception can easily become one-sided where our mortgage or the traffic or the stock market or whatever, things become very literal and solid and we forget that we're just here for a dance for a short while. I remember this monk who was a friend of mine, a Western monk, who had a psychologist come into their monastery, was kind of going to help with the mental health of the monks. This was some time ago. And gave them some, a variety of tests. They, took, they gave them the MMPI and various other things like that. And my friend who was the abbot said he came to this question of how is your, um, how do you, would you rate your sex life? Um, you know, miserable, fair, good, um, excellent, or perfect. And he thought about it for a little while and he checked perfect, you know, which was his experience as a monk. But there were all these questions that he asked about, that he was asked about how he was living his life that actually didn't make any sense because he wasn't living the life according to the person that made up the test, but he was living his life somehow according to his own heart and spirit. And we can live in a life that's filled with the things that we have and that we have to take care of and that we do and make and our responsibilities, our cows, right? All the things in the corral that we have to keep them in, our computers, whatever it is. And we forget where it comes from and where it's all going to. We forget the power of consciousness and the heart and the mind that is behind all things that moves within all this. So Rabindranath Tagore said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, not realizing on the contrary the fact that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. Or in the first verse of the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble or sorrow will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. But speak or act with a pure heart or mind, and happiness will follow as close as your shadow and as unshakable. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded, unattended. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. So when we sit in meditation, we sit to awaken to the reality that's beyond just the forms of life, to listen to the state of the heart, that's behind all the activity of our days, to try to remember that timeless reality of the spirit, to connect with what my teacher Ajahn Chah called within us the one who knows, or our true nature. So in one Tibetan text it says, for those who are near death, In the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it says, Remember the clear light, that pure, clear, white light from which everything in the universe is born, to which everything returns. The original nature of your own mind and heart, the natural state. Let go into this, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature, it is home. 
or another Buddhist text, which goes on, when one seeks one's mind, this creative fountain of mind, in its true state, mind is naked, vacuous, transparent, timeless, containing all things, yet not limited by them. And so the invitation from the story with that basket, and really from meditation, is to look into the realm of the spirit as well as the cows and the basket, the form of the basket, what's in there. But if we look at the instructions from this tradition, the practice of the elders, Theravada, they teach mindfulness, and the mindfulness is not just of the spirit and emptiness that I've been speaking of, but of the cows too. So you know the old Sufi saying, praise Allah but tie your camel to the post. (laughs) Or as Rumi put it, sometimes we put saddlebags on Jesus and let the donkey run loose in the streets. That is, we have some spiritual idea about things and we forget to tend to the cattle or the donkey or whatever it is. And then you end up somehow with what one person called a disembodied wisdom or disembodied clarity. Because for some coming to spiritual life, they want to escape their body or the pain that they carry or the world of form or the world of conflict. And yet in the Buddhist teachings, in the teachings of the elders, it said, within this fathom-long body and mind is all of the Dharma, all of the teachings, is form and emptiness, is suffering and the end of suffering or joy or freedom, all found right here. So with mindfulness, the invitation of awareness, we begin to study nama-rupa, name and form, mind or heart and matter, consciousness and its embodiment. And we see that there are really two sides of this life that make us up, and that each arises interdependent with the other, impermanent, ungraspable, and to awaken, which in Buddhism the word Buddha means one who sees, one who is awake, is to learn a respect for the truth of form and emptiness, of spirit and the form that comes out of spirit. To awaken to spirit in that way doesn't mean we have to go someplace else, but really to pay attention here. This is the place of spirit. Even the stars come down for milk sometimes, according to this story. One elder, this I read from part of this new book I've been working on of interviewing people who've done a lot of years of spiritual practice. One elder, a Catholic father and teacher, speaks of the gratitude and blessedness he's learned in his body. I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee and then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were as well as tortured souls, my faith and love got past all that junk about sin in the body that's taught sometimes in the church. It doesn't have to be so hard. 
I realized that Christ taught that I had to love my enemy. So I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, do not escalate the pain, do not torment others. And I began to teach it wherever I went. It turned into a practice of gratitude. I get up in the morning, and the body in its care is where I start. It's poignant how simple it is just to care for where we are. A poem for you from the wonderful Spanish poet Antonio Machado. The wind, one brilliant day, called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. In return for the odor of my jasmine, I'd like all the odor of your roses. I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. Well then, I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves and the waters of the fountain. The wind left and I wept. And I said to myself, what have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? What have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? We are here in this embodied mystery. To be embodied is to live within a certain suffering and beauty. To live within birth and aging and sickness and death and messiness, and complexity, and art, and love, and irony, and melancholy, and humor, and tragedy, you know, and all the richness of Shakespeare many times over. To live in this embodied mystery is to live with the inescapability of the opposites, of joy and sorrow, and tragedy and comedy. We might desire a world of spiritual perfection, you know, the things that you can think about that are so perfect when you think about them, like thinking about a perfect partner, right? Or even meeting one when you're still mostly thinking about them and don't know them so well. (laughs) That kind of perfection. And yet we turn on the television and we see Kosovo, and the wreckage that's there, and the refugees going back, and the Serbs who are fleeing, you know, the next group of refugees, one after another. Or you notice that after Columbine High School, we can't even pass a a simple law to restrict um, access to guns. And so this is this embodied world that we find ourselves in, of weddings and divorces, of birth and death, of wealth and poverty, always changing, kind of amazing. I took this out of the paper last week, New York. A man got on a subway yesterday at rush hour, died, and his body rode the train for hours before passengers notified anyone about it, police said. The man, believed to be in his 40s, had no visible signs of a struggle or attack, and no identification, police said. 
Police do not know where the man boarded the train, but believe he was dead for at least five hours. They speculate that no one noticed him because the train was crowded and people in too much of a hurry. Do you know how many people sleep on the train during rush hour? Subway rider Mario Luciari said. Unless the guy slumps into me, I just leave him alone. <laughs> so it's entitled Corpse Ride Subway for Hours in New York. That's what it said. Mm-hmm. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He writes, Being awake to the kind of suffering we encountered during the war can heal us of some of the suffering we experience when our lives are not very meaningful or useful. When you confront the kinds of difficulties we faced during the war, you see that you can be a source of compassion and a great help to the suffering of many others. In that intense suffering, you feel a strange kind of relief and joy within yourself because you know that you can be an instrument of compassion. Understanding such intense suffering and realizing compassion in the midst of that, you become a joyful person even if your life is very hard. So this is that paradox of this embodied mystery. The idea of sacred attention, of awareness or mindfulness in spiritual life is not to fix ourselves or make ourselves different or hurry up and become something, but rather to awaken to what's here, to this mystery of our human life and to illuminate it with the light of our awareness. To find the basket of spirit that's here with us and see the starlight in it. So how do we find it? One way, a poem from Rumi called Love Dogs. One night a man was crying to Allah, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until some cynic walked by and said, so, I've heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer to this. His heart fell, he quit praying, and he fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw the guide of souls, Kadir, in a thick green foliage. Why have you stopped praising? Because I never heard anything back. Oh, said the guide, this longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants to help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is their connection. (laughs) There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Thousands of them. Give your life to become one like that. So one way is that this longing, our very messy life, our love, is the message of the divine, of the sacred. It's not someplace else. It's here saying, wake up to this mystery of joy and sorrow, of creation and 
destruction of birth and death. How to open to this ever-present mystery? Spiritual life offers a variety of disciplines or practices. The sitting practice of meditation, where one quiets and listens the sounds, the body, the mind, and the heart. One of my practices is just coming to Monday nights for 15 years, and getting up here and saying something, and every week having to, before Monday night, get quiet and try to feel into something I can say that feels true, and in that sense alive and not just remembered. And it's a wonderful practice. I, I do it really for myself. It's a reminder. For some people, it's the practice of writing poetry or Aikido, or making a garden beautiful, or parenting. Parenting doesn't have to be done as a spiritual practice. It can be done in a, you know, painful or half-hearted or resentful way. It can. I mean, all those moments anyway. But when one gives oneself to something, whether it's a hundred thousand prostrations in Tibetan practice, you know, or making uh, breakfast for your children before school and their lunch over and over and over again and does it in an honorable way. Um, There's something that allows us to begin to inhabit and illuminate and bring a love or that light um, in that tending of our heart to what's there. Or the Sufi practice of looking into the eyes of everyone as the beloved, as that who carries the light of the divine, each being. Or just to say, inshallah, you know, God willing, when you get up and when you go to sleep and when you make any plans. Yeah, let's see, let's meet from 3 to 3.45 for our meeting tomorrow on, you know, sales or whatever it is, inshallah, God willing, right? Because you don't know. The practice, the heart's practice of awareness or attention or mindfulness is a kind of tending, not with a goal to perfect ourselves or make ourselves some special kind of person. We're already that. But as an embodied presence with this life that we've been given so that we can carry that spirit through difficulty and love and creativity and pain, all of them. This is a story from John Lewis, who was an African-American man that was very um, much in the forefront in the civil rights movement in the 60s and then became involved as an educator and teacher and things. But he talks about the kind of strength that he learned as a child. Um, When he was with a group of his cousins, Roy Lee and Ginny and Naomi and Leslie and Willie and Muriel, a dozen of them all, and my older sister Aura and my brothers Edward and John Robert and all of them together during the Second World War in Pike County, Alabama. And we were at my aunt's Seneva's house playing out in the dirt in the yard and the sky began clouding over and the wind started picking up and there was lightning and a great black storm was coming and I became terrified. Aunt Seneva was the only adult around and the sky blackened and she herded us inside 
And her house was a tiny little house. And it seemed smaller with all these children crowded inside. It's small and surprisingly quiet. And all the shouting and laughter that had gone outside had stopped. And the wind began howling now. It was a great storm with some tornadoes. And the house started to shake and we were scared. Even Aunt Seneva was scared. And then it got worse. And the house began to sway. And the wood plank flooring and the walls began to bend. And then one corner of the room started lifting up. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. None of us could. The storm was actually pulling the house toward the sky with us in it in one side. And that's when Aunt Seneva told us to clasp hands. Line up and hold hands, she said. And we did as we were told. And then she had us walk as a group toward the corner of the room that was rising. From the kitchen to the front of the house we walked, the wind screaming outside, the sheets of rain beating on the tin roof. And then later we walked back in the other direction as the other end of the house began to lift. And so it went, back and forth several times, 15 children walking with the wind, holding that trembling house down with the weight of our small bodies. And more than half a century has passed since that day, and it struck me more than once over those years that our society is not unlike the children in that house, rocked again and again by the winds of one storm or another, the walls seeming like they might fly apart. But the people of conscience never leave the house. They don't run away, they stay, and they do the best they can, clasping hands and moving toward the corner of the house that's the weakest. That's his story. The kind of attention that's asked if we are to awaken the great heart of a Buddha, if we are to become free, is not the attention to some place else or something else, but to just what's here, to the challenges and the struggles and the beautiful things and the creativity and the love that are entrusted to us. There are three trainings of this mindfulness to awaken to that great spirit within which we live, the spirit in that basket, to step beyond the small sense of self, what we call sometimes the body of fear, to open to that which is greater, that we know in us, is true. The first of those simple trainings is the training of compassion or non-harming. It comes, sometimes it's called wise conduct. It comes when we dedicate ourselves in our speech and our action to not harm other beings, but rather to care for them. And again from the Buddha. The perfumes of sandalwood, rose bay, and jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue and a compassionate heart travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world like garlands woven from a heap of flowers fashioned from your life as many good deeds. And so the first practice of this embodied attention or this embodied spirit 
is that of the respect we give to our words and our action and how we touch the community around us. And if the heart is filled with a caring or a respect to not kill even little things, to not steal or speak untruth, but rather to revere the life around us, to care for the things of this world no matter what, to speak up in the situations of injustice and tell the truth. If we do that, then the world becomes luminous. Our world becomes beautiful and filled with light. And you know it. When you meet somebody who always speaks the truth, there's a, there's a, a light around them that's quite wonderful. This is from Eddie Hillison, who died in the concentration camps. She said, you must be able to bear your sorrow. Even if it seems to crush you, you will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on enemies. For they too sorrow in this moment. But give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears their grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. And Martin Luther King, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, to do the will of the divine, come what may. And you can begin to feel the light that is there in the spirit that lives with that kind of integrity and compassion. That's one of the forms of light that we can remember, evoke, bring out of us into the world. A second, along with that compassion and non-harming that's called sila, a second is spoken of as samadhi. And in this way of the elders speaking, it means the gathering together or the collection of all the parts of ourselves, the unification of the heart and the mind together. So that in the Bible, Jesus wrote, if thine eye be single, the whole body will be filled with light. And W.S. Merwin, I say to my breath once again, little breath, come from in front of me, go away behind me, Row me quietly now, as far as you can, for I am an abyss I am trying to cross. And Merwin really speaks about the practice of the breath of meditation. That when we sit, there's the abyss of that space within which our thoughts come and to which they disappear. And our feelings arise out of that ocean and vanish. And our imaginations and our sensations come and go. And the breath becomes the boat that rows us across that ocean. And it can be the breath, or it can be anything 
that we bring ourselves wholly and fully to, whether it's the making of pottery or the creation of a computer program or the creation of a garden or music or lovemaking or swimming, the place where we bring our whole body and heart and mind together, that wholeness then mirrors the wholeness of the world. And we become luminous. The world becomes luminous. When we're not scattered, you know, that line I use all the time, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. When we're actually here in our body and in our heart and in our mind together, things light up. And when you meet somebody who's present in that way, you feel it. It's like the light in the basket from the stars comes through us. And we don't know it. I mean, we lose ourselves in things and we don't realize that it's possible. Thoreau put it this way. He said, some men go fishing their whole lives without realizing it's not fish they're after. (laughs) We do all these things seeking something and that something is a wholeness or a connectedness. All these ways to find it. So the second is to undertake some practice that brings you back to wholeness. And then finally, this awareness of compassion, the awareness of the unification of wholeness, becomes the gateway to prajna, panya, wisdom. In the quieting of the mind, in the opening of the heart, in stillness and silence and presence, when we listen really deeply, even for a moment, when we sense deeply, we feel that actually the idea that we're separate makes no sense at all. We can feel it. It's not an idea. The the whole sense of separateness, if you feel into it, starts to dissolve. Where are the boundaries of who you are? There you're breathing all the time. That's a part of you. You just ate. I don't know what you ate for dinner. Maybe it was plants and maybe it was animals, right? But now guess what? It's part of you, you know? And for a while that was just on the counter there um, at the uh, deli, right? There it was. And now (laughs) it's you, right? And that cup of, you know, Calistoga, or whatever that you had with lime squeezed in it. I mean, the lime is part of you. And the water from the Calistoga geyser or whatever, wherever they bottle it up there, is now part of, that's part of you. Isn't that bizarre? And as we pay attention in that quiet way, the truth that form is emptiness, and emptiness is form, and that all of it is completely connected, becomes not a philosophy, but more and more of a reality. The small sense of self, the body of fear, begins to open and see all these moments that are true where it's not just this little self, but it's us. Wisteria vines thrive in poor soil. Their secret is something called rhizobia. Rhizobia are microscopic bugs that live underground in little knots on the roots. They suck nitrogen gas right out of the soil and turn it into fertilizer for the plant. They're not part of the plant. 
they're separate creatures, but they always live with it, a kind of underground railroad moving secretly up and down the roots, nourishing it. There's a whole invisible system for helping out the plant that you'd never guess was there. It's just the same with you, my friend. The wisteria vines on their own would barely get by, but put them together with rhizobia and they make beautiful flowers. To stop waving our arms so much and running around and being busy, not that there isn't a certain time for that, but thank God there are moments when we don't do it. And hopefully it's more than just when we lie down to fall asleep exhausted. Got through that day, you know. (laughs) To have some moments where we sit or walk in nature or do our prayers or whatever connects us allows the worlds to unite the spirit that's in that basket and the basket of this body, the wedding of body and spirit. A friend of mine who is a Zen master told me about a woman who came on a Zen sashin with him. He teaches using koans. And she was sitting doing some traditional Zen koan and she just started to weep and weep and he asked her why she was weeping in his interview. And it turned out her father had died that year and she was just missing him terribly. She'd had a close relationship and there was all this grief pouring out. And he said, all right, I'm going to change my koan change the koan that I've given you to a new koan. My koan is, where is your father? That's the koan I'd like you to answer. And so she would come in several times a day to try to answer this koan and struggle with it. What happened to my father? Where is he? And he's gone. And she'd weep some more. My father, he's in my memory. And she'd weep more and more. And she wrestled with that koan, I guess, for quite a while, maybe a succession of sashin or retreats. And he said one day she had been sitting in meditation with the koan, Where is your father? She walked in and bowed as you do to the Zen master. And he asked, What's your koan? And she said, My koan is, Where is my father? And so he looked back at her as the Zen master does. And then he asked the question, Where is your father? And he said she leapt up from the seat that she was sitting on and she began this beautiful dance in the room. And she said, I am my father. And he said he knew in that moment that she knew that her father never died, that her father was as much a part of her as he had ever been. And that she and her father and the rest of us in this room have the same last name as the redwood trees, you know, and as the grasses that grow on the hillsides here. And that they're all our children. So when we bring this respectful and loving or compassionate and genuine attention over and over here. Oh, look at this. Hi. Great big flying creature. Come on. When we really cultivate it, not just as an idea, but as the practice that we do, we realize that that basket in the story, that actually is who we are. Kabir puts it this way, speaking of this body, this human body. 
He says, inside this clay jug, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water. If you want the truth, I will tell you the truth, my friend. Listen, Kabir will tell you. The God whom I love, that which is holy or sacred, all that you seek is inside. There is a wedding, a coming together with mindful presence, mindful attention that honors body and spirit, the cows in the basket, both, the 10,000 joys and the sorrows that make up this life. And within just this body that you've been given, just as it is now with its aches and pains and pleasures and longings and possibilities and its aging, all the things within this father-long body and heart and mind is all of the Dharma, is all of the suffering of the world and the truth of the end of suffering, the truth of freedom and joy. So that Zen Master Dogen writes, Just understand that birth and death itself is nirvana, and you will neither hate one as being birth and death or seek the other as being nirvana. Only then can you be free of birth and death. This present birth and death that you experience is the life of the Buddha. If you reject it with distaste, you thereby lose the life of the Buddha. But if you attach to it, you also lose the life of the Buddha. Can you hear those? If you reject it, you lose that possibility of freedom and presence. And if you attach to it, you also lose that possibility of freedom and presence. There's an extremely easy way to live as a Buddha. Refrain from causing harm. Do not cling to what is born or what dies. Serve with deep compassion all sentient beings, respecting those around you, and give up worrying <laughs> and fear, and you will live as a Buddha. Don't search for anything else. Such simple instructions. When our life becomes illuminated by our attention, that's where the light comes. We enter the marketplace, the shops, we enter politics and the arts with a wise and loving heart. We understand the freedom that is not going forward and not moving backward and not standing still. Let's sit for a moment.
But as you sit, listening, open, receptive, allow yourself to reflect on whether it is the basket or the cows that need tending in your life, whether it's this earth body that needs your loving attention, or whether it's the spirit that's unseen. You can know what calls your heart's attention. and reflect as well about your practice. What is your practice that steadies you, that returns you to this mystery? Not to perfect it or yourself, but to open your heart, to awaken you in your life. We'll take about, oh, just a few minutes, three or four minutes, I'd like to ask you a question and then we'll have a little chant and we'll end for the evening. Since the light is fading now, the rest of the light you can carry in yourself. Um, When you reflected on whether it was the basket or the cows that need tending or what is it that asks your heart's attention, and what your practice is, what steadies and returns you to this mystery. I'm just curious to hear from a few people what came to you or what you know, discover. Anyone? Please. They both need tending. They both need tending. Ah, yes. Praise Allah and tie your camel to the post. I see. Both Allah and the camel are in line. Yes, and how do you tend them? One not so very well, mm. and the other perhaps too much. One not so very. Which one do you tend too much? I, I tend the cows. You tend the cows more than the, what's in the basket. Mm. Thank you. Someone else, please. Yes. Mm. Journal writing, going outside, mm-hmm. sleeping enough, <laughs> eating well, yeah. eating enough water, coming 
Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, sleeping well. We, you know, we sleep a lot less than people did at the turn of the century. I'm sure you know that. Everybody's read that in the news in the last years because we're busier and more complicated lives and there's more demanded of us and then there's all the television and the movies and the lights and what? Starbucks. Starbucks, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Get your latte on the way home. Anyone else? Please. I really need to tend my cows right now. Mm. I really need to tend my cows right now. What are your cows? My, I'm changing the nature of my business and even where I live now. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the tending of your work and your business and where you live, all that's what needs the tending. Yeah. So, um, two very brief announcements and then our chant. Um, some flyers came during the break for the uh, for Seymour Burstein's um, uh, presentation on um, working wedding of the spiritual and the psychological in Berkeley um, on July 13th. So there's some up here and some in the back. Um, I will be gone for the next, I think, four Mondays. I'll be in Europe. There's a Vipassana teachers meeting in England and Gaia House that I'll be going to and I'll be teaching in London a little bit and traveling a bit with my family. Um, so there'll be a series of other people coming over the next few weeks to teach. I forget what order they're in. I can't remember, but I think Ed Brown is one who many of you know is the Zen teacher and cooking master. And Lama Paulden, Carol, Caroline Paulden Wood is another and um, others in addition to that. And then I'll be back. So before we go, maybe we could do a little chant. Let's do a chant of compassion. Om Mani Padme Hum. The jewel is in the lotus. The jewel is the uh, jewel of the awakened mind and the lotus is the symbol for the heart. When the mind and the heart are wed, when the head and heart are not apart, when they come together, then um, one lives in the space of uh, awakened compassion. So we'll chant that a little bit and then we'll go out into the First summer evening. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Hum. Bless as you chant with compassion. Om. Mani Padme Hum Those you know and those who ask for it. Om Mani Padme Hum And those you don't know and who don't ask. Om Mani Padme and all beings. Om Mani Padme Hum Om
harmony. Om Mani Padme Om Om Mani Padme Om Three more times. Om Mani Padme Om Om Mani Padme Om Om Mani Padme So may your summer ahead be filled with blessings and may you tend the cows and the starlight in the baskets as well. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.